Hello and welcome to the Data Lab podcast. I'm Joanna McKenzie and I'm Head of Data Science at the Data Lab. As I speak, everyone's attention is being drawn to COP26, which this year is happening here in Scotland and in fact here in Glasgow. At the Data Lab, we were keen to take the opportunity to celebrate how data is helping the effort to save our planet. So we made that the theme of our third week of DataFest events. For the technical part of DataFest, Data Tech, that meant we could look into the nuts and bolts of how data and data professionals are contributing to that effort, whether it's by using satellite data to investigate biodiversity, by contributing to the circular economy, or by integrating the environment into our understanding of public health. For our technical challenge panel, we focused on the way data and machine learning are used in the energy sector to support the transition to renewable energy. This is very personally important area for me as I came to the data lab after 10 years working in wind farm analysis of various kinds. One of our panelists for this panel was Dr. Jethro Browell. Jethro is a senior lecturer and EPSERC innovation fellow at the University of Glasgow in the Maths and Stats department. He works on energy forecasting and analytics and has worked extensively with the energy industry developing forecasting models. So welcome to the podcast, Jethro. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure as always. Let's start with the very basics. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you end up in energy forecasting? Yeah, so uh, it was a bit of a roundabout route, to be honest. Uh, I was always into maths and science in school and uh, always wanted to try and understand the world as best I could. And that led me to a, a maths and physics degree. Um, but by the end of that, I found I had more questions than when I started. Uh, and I also felt I wanted to do something more practical. And uh, the energy sector seems like a really uh, exciting place to, to apply my knowledge in, in maths and physics. So there were loads of challenges around the transition to renewables, which was really ramping up around that time, so kind of 2010, 11. Um, and that was something I, I was passionate about. And it was uh, a happy coincidence that there were um, PhD positions available at the University of Strathclyde in the Wind Energy Centre for Doctoral Training. And the great thing about that was uh, they welcomed multidisciplinary applicants. And you didn't have to say exactly what you wanted to research from the get-go. You got a year's training uh, to teach people like me who had a kind of Massive physics back, background about all the things, engineering and energy related that you needed to know before embarking on research in, in wind energy. So that fit the bill great for me. And I had uh, four fantastic years there uh, doing a PhD in, which ended up being in wind power forecasting. And uh, I enjoyed the research environment and working in the energy sector so much. I, I stayed on at Strathclyde uh, as a member of research staff, uh, still working on forecasting, but branching out. Uh, beyond wind energy, so into uh, other things we need to forecast in the energy sector, like energy consumption, solar power, hydropower, and then on the markets and power system operation side, we might be interested in things like prices um, and how energy might flow around the network in the future. Um, and yeah, that led me to working with you know fantastic colleagues in academia and industry. Uh, and I was increasingly um, developing new methodologies for forecasting, um, which are mathematical, statistical in nature. And that's how I ended up in my current role in the School of Math and Statistics at the University of Glasgow, uh, where I continue to develop those methods in the energy sector, but just uh, surrounded by mathematicians rather than engineers day to day. Very good. 
Um, I think there's a quite a lot in what you do that depends on a certain amount of knowledge of how the electricity system works. But hmm. I think maybe most people that are listening haven't spent an awful lot of time thinking about the, the actual nuts and bolts of it. You want to sort of start telling us a little bit about just the very background of, of what, how this all fits into one big electricity network system. Mm. And we can d dig into the energy forecasting bit from there. Great. Yeah, so the, the electricity system is, is incredible. It's probably the biggest, most complicated machine uh, humans have, have constructed. And the, the remarkable thing, which um, uh, isn't immediately apparent, is that supply and demand have to meet, have to balance one another almost continuously in real time. And when you think about the number of um, people go going about their daily lives, businesses and industrial processes, they just expect power to be available when you, you hit that on switch. It's incredible that we managed to achieve that balance. Um, and I think the other amazing thing that uh, blows my mind whenever I, I think about it is this, uh, how interconnected everything is. So even from the, the moment you uh, switch on a light switch, there's a, a connection uh, you know, through copper wires to all the power stations in the country. And you know, Isaac Newton, you know, taught us about uh, every action having an equal and opposite reaction. And that applies in the electricity system as well. So when you turn on a light switch and you draw some energy from that system, it's having to come from somewhere else. And that somewhere else is a power station. And so there's that continuous connection between you turning on a light switch and uh, you know, the huge rotating mass in a generator at power stations around the country. And I think that that's just amazing. So we've got this massive engineering challenge of um, energy generation and energy supply and a massive grid of transmission lines and distribution lines that are delivering that on demand to all of mm -hmm. all the people who are wanting to use power across from that. But the actual process of then making sure that that's paid for effectively is a, mm -hmm. is a much more complex system almost than the engineering challenge on there. And I was Absolutely. amazed by that when I first started looking into it. Absolutely. It's, um, it, it, electricity is unlike any other commodity. You know, if you're talking about you know, grain or metals, you, know, you have a, a certain amount of mass or something. It's very easy to understand what a quantity of that thing is. But with electricity, it's much more abstract. Uh, and I, as you say, the fact that the, it's consumed you know, continuously um, means we, we, we have to do something that maybe... Uh, we we have to we've had to create some way of measuring blocks of energy and saying well this is a unit of energy in this amount in this and it has a price in this time period um, so yeah it's it's quite amazing. Uh, so the cost that you'll pay for your electricity depends on how much you're using, depends on when you're using it, and depends on the other influences on the system around about you, which might include how windy it was. For absolutely, instance. absolutely, and that. Consumers, you know, um, domestic consumers aren't really exposed to all of that variability. Um, but other factors come into play as well, such as the ability to deliver that energy through the network. So generators, for example, might be paid a slightly different price or be exposed to different costs for accessing the network based on how easy it is to get their power from where it's being produced to where it's consumed. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's an amazing, it's 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 a huge, incredible system, um, and we've had to create these 
you know, commercial structures, if you like, to incentivize behaviors that allow it to keep working and to keep it developing as well. So like you say, the construction of new generators, build it, building a network that can facilitate the generation and the way we want to use energy as well um, is, is a massive challenge. And we haven't got it right yet, but the power is still flowing. Um, so it, it can't be going too badly. That's a good start. I think the other thing that we should probably talk about a little bit is energy trading, because of mm. course that's very key to why forecasting is such an important part of all of this massive system. Um, and it's interesting because I think a lot of customers, domestic customers of electricity systems, will may- maybe be a little bit confused by the fact that their energy supplier might not generate any electricity at mm. all. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... So we, we were speaking earlier about how supply and demand have to balance in real time. And the way that's achieved is to start um, buying and selling energy really far ahead of time. So if you know you want to consume some energy next winter, if you buy it as early as possible from somebody who can supply it, then you're starting to build up that supply and demand balance ahead of time through commercial agreements. And that process continues right up until almost real time um, energy can be is, is still being bought and sold to, to fine-tune that supply and demand balance in a commercial sense. And then, of course, the whole, the whole thing relies on people meeting those commercial obligations to supply or consume what they said they would. Um, I've lost my train of thought from the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the important thing, I think, there is that the domestic customer themselves doesn't have to look ahead to next winter and decide when they want to boil the kettle. Their energy supply company will do that on their behalf by trading in advance for somebody who's got a generation capability That's right, for that time horizon. That was the point. So, yeah, not all suppliers generate themselves. They're, they're almost like a, a, a third party who's buying from generators and, and selling to suppliers. Of course, you get some some big, what we might call vertically integrated utilities who have all those different types of business under their umbrella, if you like. But I say there are, there are many independent suppliers in, in the UK and around around the world as well. Um, that said, the, the, the energy trading um, and the, those marketplaces produce price signals, which um, you know one mechanism for incentivizing behaviors that are necessary to keep supply and demand in balance and and and, and power flowing and one uh, idea for the future in order to um, increase the flexibility on the demand side so for consumers to start um, adjusting their behavior you know for example when there's abundant uh, green energy or or perhaps there's not enough uh, low carbon energy and we're relying on dirty fossil fuels, is there some way you can incentivize uh, consumers to, to respond to that? And uh, the, the way we uh, do that in a, kind of, in, in a market setting is through these price signals. And so there are one or two tariffs available in the UK now which provide a price signal to consumers uh, that will, um, through smart metering where you're, you know, you're being metered every half hour rather than you know somebody coming and reading you meter every six weeks you can be charged a different price in every half hour based on uh on these uh on what's going on in, in the wider energy system uh, and th- this is one way um we might see the energy system evolve uh, in the future if that kind of thing becomes more widespread brilliant 
So how does energy forecasting feed into all of this then? Absolutely. So if you're um, <clears throat> a generator or a supplier, you need to uh, buy and sell energy ahead of time, uh, as we've just been talking about. And so that invariably means you need a forecast. Uh, if you're a, a supplier, you need to know how much energy to purchase to meet your customers' needs. If you're a generator selling energy ahead of time, you need a good idea of how much power you're going to be producing uh, in order to sell it. Otherwise, you, you end up in a sticky situation. Um, and so th this requires forecasts on all kinds of, of um, time horizons. So um, suppliers might be interested in how much is going to be consumed in the winter ahead. Is it going to be a particularly cold winter requiring extra energy? Um, wind power generators um, are obviously exposed to the weather, which can be highly variable and forecasts only become um, you know, accurate uh, on shorter timescales, maybe weeks or days ahead. And so they'll be waiting until those kind of timescales before they start making trading decisions. And then as we get closer and closer to real time and forecasts become more and more accurate, um, those trading decisions can be um, can be refined and hopefully the market will uh, behave efficiently and everyone will get paid uh, what they do. Um, it also comes into the forecasting is also important. The other side of this equation, which of course is making sure the physical system itself keeps keeps operating. So uh, in, uh, in Great Britain, uh, National Grid uh, electricity system operator performs that function and they need forecasts as, as well as well of what all the generators are going to be doing um, at quite high spatial resolution. So while a trader might be interested in what their portfolio is doing and making sure they've bought and sold all the energy for their kind of collection of power plants and, and supply customers potentially, National Grid is really interested in what's happening at every single power station and how the power is going to be flowing around the network between those, um, those power plants and uh, the points on the grid where uh, consumers are connected to, to take off that power. And so they require forecasts um, so that they can anticipate actions they might need to take either to resolve issues on the network with the way power is flowing. Obviously, there's a finite amount of power that can flow down any line. They might have to do some adjustment. Um, or indeed, if, if the market hasn't quite got things right, if the, if the forecasts weren't perfect, and of course, forecasts um, are never perfect, there's always a bit of a residual adjustment uh, that has to be done by the electricity system operator. So that might involve turning up or down generation or demand, uh, just to make sure that supply and demand balance um, is maintained. That's really interesting. And I think what's fascinating about it is that the energy forecasting is critical to how we manage our modern electricity grid. But we've inherited most of our infrastructure and a lot of our um, generation supply from a historical grid where this either wouldn't have been possible because we didn't have anything like the data capabilities mm. and the computing capabilities, but it also wasn't necessary in the same way. Mm. So Absolutely. Yeah, so if we... Imagine, uh, you know, 30 years ago or so when um, majority of generation was um, fuel-based, so highly controllable. Uh, and the only thing we really had to forecast was uh, electricity demand, um, which is actually quite predictable. Um, people's routines, uh, uh, well, people are creatures of habit. Their, their routines to be the same, and that applies to energy consumption as well. 
And for example, for example, the, the typical demand forecast error um, for the national electricity consumption is, is very small, you know, around 1%, sometimes 2%. So that, you know, that's pretty good going. And um, especially if you can control all your generation um, to match what you, you forecast, you can plan quite far ahead. You can operate that plan very efficiently because you know very, you know, with, with a high degree of confidence what you what you're going to ask of it to do. Um, you're in quite quite a nice situation. Um, but we've seen big changes as, as we've decarbonized, uh, shifting to more weather dependent renewables. And as you know, everyone who goes outside will know, um, you know, that the weather can can do very different things on on different days, and it can be difficult to predict. And so. Um, one of the big changes has been uh, introducing that uncertainty onto the supply side, um, but we also see see its effects on the demand side as well, where um, people are installing domestic solar, for example, and actually lots of small renewables as well, so small scale wind uh, and hydro just appear like negative demand from the electricity network's perspective, um, and so the, the demand side has also become more uncertain and difficult to predict. And for comparison, the, the national wind power forecast error is, is more like uh, 4%. So that, that's a, a big difference. Um, if, if you imagine how actions required to take to manage a kind of 1% error, now we're in the, we still have that 1% or 2% demand forecast error, which is challenging in the middle of the day in uh, summer when we have lots of solar as well in the mix. Um, Plus the wind wind forecast error as well, um, yeah. There's, there's much more uncertainty. Uh, that's for sure. People often talk about the fact that you don't have that certainty with renewable energy. Um, I think, but mm. what we often forget is to turn that on its head and say, "But what does it bring us?" Firstly, mm. no fuel requirements. Secondly, no carbon. So of course we can mm. put that down straight away. But I think the third thing that brings us is a lot of flexibility. So you can't turn Absolutely. your wind farm up beyond what the wind resource will support, but you can turn it down and you can turn it down on a really, really short horizon. So if you're over-generating on your whole system, it gives you a lot of control over um, how you bring that back down again to have those very responsive power supply networks yeah. in there. That's so true. Wind turbines are amazing in, in, what, in the, how controllable they are. Um, like you say, they can ramp up and down very quickly. They can follow a, uh, a signal. If you, if you ask them to produce a particular power profile, they can do it incredibly accurately. And they can also uh, be, be switched into a mode to help um, balance supply and demand uh, continuously on a second-by-second -second basis by, by measuring that balance through the grid's frequency and modulating their output up and down a little bit continuously to help keep that supply and demand balance, um, uh, yeah, as as we go forwards, and that's that's an incredibly important um, part of the electricity system, which we haven't touched on yet. That kind of um, they get called ancillary services because it's not really, uh, it's not just supplying energy; it's supplying uh, a service that's required to keep the system going. Um, so what I just mentioned there was frequency response, where you, you you're measuring the grid's frequency which will increase if there's uh, more generation than demand or decrease if there's more uh, demand than generation. And we, we can adjust the generation side uh, to keep that, that balance in the grid frequency at, at 50 hertz in the grid brain, which is where we like it to be, um, by using things like wind turbines, which can respond so quickly 
Uh, and as it turns out, speed is of the essence when it comes to frequency response, especially as we have fewer and fewer large generators, um, conventional generators, which actually slow down how quickly the frequency changes when there's an imbalance. So as we lose those, the frequency wants to change faster. So we need faster and faster response. But happily, the generation where we're building, so wind turbines can, can provide that. It's an, it's an enormously complex system. It, it amazes me. The more I look into it, the more complexity I see. It's a, um, and even after sort of 10 years working in energy and working in wind farms, there's still always more interesting things to learn. One thing that was a big thing just before I moved to the data lab um, was the, the idea of using extra generation when there's high wind speeds and starting to look into storage coupled in mm. with wind farms so that if you are being curtailed so that you're producing less energy than the wind needs instead of just forfeiting that energy and saying okay we're not going to we're not going to take that you instead switch to drive a storage model so that later mm. when you're a bit low on wind for what you need you can maybe access that from storage absolutely and i think um you know there's huge potential with uh, schemes like that the the one of the, the challenges though is, is is having enough storage you, you you'll know yourself when it when it's um windy in Scotland, it tends to be windy for several hours, maybe a few days at a time. And if you're not careful, you'll fill up your storage very quickly and then it'll be sat not doing anything until the wind dies away again. And then you'll discharge it very quickly again. And um, you end up having very few cycles of that storage, which uh, if it's, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of lithium-ion batteries here, which, um, you know, aren't, aren't huge. But we have other types of storage in the UK as well in the form of um, pumped hydro storage. Uh, where when we have this excess energy, we can pump water up a hill and store huge amounts of energy, and uh, you know, and economically for you know, longer periods of time. And then when there's demand for energy and maybe less wind power, um, let the water flow back down the hill through a generator and, and produce power. Um, but e even with what we have today, so I think we we have um, only a handful of pump storage that we built maybe in the in the 50s, I think, uh, in, in Wales and a, a few smaller sites in Scotland, um, one option uh, we've been looking at is, is, is can we build more pump storage, um, which has, has you know, these benefits we're talking about, but it, it's, a, it's a very um, different prospect because they're such huge infrastructure projects, you know, requiring billions of pounds of government investment and you know a, a significant environmental impact as well. You know, if you're building a dam to create a reservoir, you know that's that's a serious environmental change. And uh, obviously, there are huge considerations that need to go along with that as well. Um, but we'll see. You know, with um, building lithium-ion batteries just for the power system, if we're filling them up and uh, emptying them infrequently, it's not so. Um, Maybe the, it's difficult to build a business case them by themselves for that purpose. But we're also moving into a world where um, we might be driving around in uh, cars that are powered by lithium-ion batteries. Uh, so they, ha they have that, uh, their, their purpose and their, their business case is there just for um, the, the transport application. But when they're not being used to transport people, perhaps they could be used to store this uh, excess energy uh, as a kind of ancillary benefit, if you like. And I think there's there's a lot of 
um, there's some really exciting prospects um, ahead when it comes to um, decarbonizing other parts of the energy sector, so transport and heat, um, which could, uh, yeah, which will interact with the electricity system in in, in new ways, uh, providing challenges but also opportunities as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's an awful lot of background on the electricity network and how that all works, um, and it's fascinating stuff. But can we move on a little bit and talk now about your research? So what, what is it about energy forecasting that you've been looking into? Yeah, so um, energy forecasting, I, I find I find fascinating. Um, the Making predictions is, is always challenging, um, but in this uh, the energy sector we have many sources of predictability, and it, it's a the, the challenge is, is finding those finding and extracting those 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 nuggets of predictability. So um, a lot of what I do uh, is driven by the timescale we're interested in. So I, I've worked on forecasting from uh, seconds and minutes ahead, where actually what's happening, what's just happened, is um, a really good predictor of what's going to happen next, um, maybe with some extra bits of information. So there, if we're forecasting you know, how much energy um, uh, will be consumed, looking at what's just happened and uh, what what happened in similar situations in the past uh, can enable us to make a very accurate forecast of what might happen in the, the minutes and hours ahead. And the same goes for wind farms and, and solar farms as well. Um, when we're forecasting uh, hours and days ahead, um, we're in the, the realm of weather forecasting. And I'm not a meteorologist, I don't produce weather forecasts, but the, there's a real, the challenge is converting that, that weather forecast, so maybe a forecast of wind speed, maybe at multiple heights, uh, and converting that into how much power would be produced by a wind farm um, it, it is, is quite a complicated process. So if you imagine the the, the wind speed uh, blowing across uh, a wind farm, there's, there's uh, maybe you know hills in the wind farm. It could be spread out over quite a large area with forestry. Uh, the, the physicist part in me would like to build a model of all of that detail and model the flows. And uh, it turns out, even with um, you know very high resolution, sophisticated models, that's that's very difficult to do. It's computationally intensive. And especially if you want to be running that continuously and out into the future, um, uh, you don't get very far. And so we're in this world of converting, learning this relationship between what the weather forecast has said in the past and what actually happened, learning, trying to learn that relationship um, using tools of data science and machine learning and applying those when we get a new weather forecast to say, well, um, based on what's happened in the past and this new weather forecast, this is what we think uh, will produce in terms of wind power. And that applies to solar power and demand to a lesser extent as well. So the sort of model that you talk about, um, the CFD model of a wind farm mm. essentially, is of course used in the industry. And that was mm. part of my role in the uh, wind farm analytics that I did beforehand mm -hmm. but it's done over a long term you don't you don't say in real time minute by minute or 10 mm -hmm. minute by 10 minute this is how much power we expect to get over 20 years yeah. you look and you say okay when the wind's in this direction it will be that and then you and you do the model for 360 mm -hmm. degrees and it's even then compu computationally expect 
expensive mm. because it's a large area and a very yeah. complex <laughs> problem. Um, but doing it in real time, as you, we're not there yet where that sort of comp- computational power is in there. Mm. Um, so that sort of ability to model the actual wind farm in real time and almost do a digital twin approach mm. um, is, is computationally difficult and it's not something that we're in. So we're, we're back down to the almost the machine learning approach where mm. you've got data, you've got your wind pro- forecasts, um, you've got your historical performance. Um, mm-hmm. And if you bring those together, yeah, absolutely. You, you're in a kind of classical supervised learning setup um, where you've got your your weather forecast as your input and your target variable as your power production. And um, yeah, you can throw many um, uh, any many of the methods from the supervised learning toolkit at that problem. Uh, and one of the interesting results actually in this, this area is that the the choice of model. Uh, that you choose, you know, whether it's a neural network or a gradient-boosted tree or, or, or something else, um, is important, but almost as important, maybe even more important, some would argue, is the way you prepare the, the input data, the, the weather forecasts. And uh, I'm sure many listeners will be with the term of feature engineering, where you don't just take the, the, forecast, the weather forecast as it comes, you, you do some pre-processing on it. And we can use um, our knowledge of how uh, the weather and these weather forecasting models work to inform the way we do that feature engineering. And this has been one of the um, uh, really nice advances in this area, maybe in, in the last five years or so. So um, weather forecasts themselves come on a, a spatial grid. So you might get a, a grid at you know, 10 kilometer resolution, say over the um, uh, a large geographic expanse like Scotland, for example, and wind speed at uh, two or three different heights, which uh, hopefully cover the heights of your your wind turbines. And the forecast can be wrong in a number of different ways. So it can uh, have what we call a level error. Um, So the wind speed is a bit too high or a bit too low compared to what actually happens. But it can also be wrong uh, spatially. So it could get the, the, for example, the passing of a weather front um, you know, the timing about right, but that weather front could be in a different location to what the weather forecast said, or it could get the location about right, but the timing wrong. And we can encode that into our feature engineering to help our supervised learning method um, extract predictive information from that. So by not just taking the weather forecast for a specific location, a specific, specific time, uh, we, we expand our feature set to include the weather forecast for the hours before and the hours after, and the the locations around our uh, wind farm in this case. And we can create, we can use that that data as it comes, or we can create some features, you know, like a rolling means, uh, spatial means and standard deviations, uh, all the rest of it. And uh, hopefully our supervised learning setup will be able to handle lots of inputs um, with some automated feature selection, and we get a a marked improvement um, just from that feature engineering step itself, um, which I think, uh, yeah, is, is you know it has brought value to to the sector, and um, shows how it's not it's not just enough to have computational power, that domain expertise, and encoding that in uh, the in, in what you're doing is is so important as well. 
So do you would you take the same approach to this if you were forecasting for one individual wind farm as you would if you had to look at more of a national grid view where it's important about a whole fleet of wind farms that's that's being forecasted? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think it's still to some extent an open question. Um, so we're in the, and I would say the forecasting approach I would take would be driven by the decision the forecast was designed to inform. So that one forecast might not be what you need for all, all decisions. So when it comes to uh, network constraints, for example, um, you might be interested in you know, the transmission system, the high voltage system, where you have clusters of wind farms in different countries connected in, uh, sorry, in different regions connected to the transmission system at you know, approximately the same location. So you might be interested in a forecast of that cluster together, and in fact, many clusters, um, so that you can see you know, the power injections onto the network and the resulting flows. Um, something we haven't touched on yet, but it's very important in, uh, in, in this space is quantifying forecast uncertainty. So we know our forecast is going to be wrong, uh, but if we know how wrong it might be, we can start managing that risk uh, in the most economic way possible. And uh, we can, you can imagine how for a forecast of a single variable like power output from one of these regions, you could have some, some interval, some, some band where you would expect the power to fall with some probability that you're happy with, you know, let's say we'll deal with the 95% worst cases and be prepared for those. And if, if anything worse than that happens, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just take the hit. Um, but when you have multiple locations, uh, suddenly the picture becomes very com much more complicated because you're interested in, well, what if we overpredict in this location? What's the chance that we'll also overpredict in another location, which would make things worse? But also the What's the probability that we'll overpredict in one location, underpredict in another, and actually those things will cancel out and we'll, we'll be fine. And so, uh, in in this uh, network networked space, we're interested in the that dependency structure of our forecast uncertainty as well. Um, and all of this um, makes the, the forecast itself very complicated because it's no no longer a single number for each location. It's a, a multivariate probability distribution, and that's very difficult to work with, and certainly to imagine and visualize and present to, you know, maybe a control engineer who has to decide whether to turn up a power station or turn down a power station, and, and which is a very deterministic decision. Um, and so, uh, in that situation, forecasting itself might not be enough. It might need to be coupled with some form of decision support uh, to to inform that decision. Um, but the initial question, I think, was was also related to hierarchies, which is is very interesting. So um, you know we have um, many wind farms. I think there are around over 170, I think, large wind farms in the UK connected to the transmission system today that National Grid forecasts for. But as we've been discussing, they're interested in the regional total and the national total as well. And actually, we can we can capitalize on on that hierarchical structure of. Uh, individual wind farms, summing to regions, summing to the national total. This applies to demand and solar and uh, all the rest as well. I'm just using wind as an example here. And um, so using the methods we've been talking about from data science, 
it might be more, you might produce a more accurate forecast for the national total um, by um, trying to predict it directly than you would if you forecast every individual wind farm and just added them up. Um, but it turns out, actually, if you forecast every in, the individual wind farms, the regions, and the total um, independently, but then add a constraint that they have to sum up to one another, as you'd expect, you can actually improve the forecast at all levels of the hierarchy um, while making your forecast coherent so they sum up in the correct way, which um, is, a, is a really pleasing result. And um, in, intuitively, it kind of comes from the way we're um, sharing information between those layers in the hierarchy um, to the benefit of, of all of our forecasts, which is really nice. So we talked about how actually digital twinning or modeling the whole system, or even at a single wind farm level, is just computationally too mm. difficult. But as you talk about that, even the machine learning approaches that you're talking about on the levels of complexity and the amount of actual information that's flowing, there's a massive computational effort just in there and in, mm. in making the forecast on the right time horizon um, across um, a different a, a time zone, um, but also bringing in these level uh, these assessments of uncertainty, these hierarchical reviews. So I can see why you could spend so much time and research and brain power <laughs> on this problem. <laughs> yeah, there. absolutely. There's a, there's a lot to do, um, and there's there's still room. For, there's, there's always room for improvement. And you know, part of this is coming from. Uh, improvement in numerical weather prediction. So uh, weather, numerical weather predictions are, are becoming more accurate. We're able to forecast further ahead into the future, higher temporal granularity. And the, the energy sector is becoming so um, weather dependent. Obviously, it's such a critical part of society. We're starting to even get, get feedbacks between uh, the energy sector and, and the weather forecasting uh, models where um, wind farm production might be somehow assimilated into the weather model uh, in order to help it make better predictions uh, you know those locations going going out into the future uh, especially in in offshore wind for example where there are very few weather observations offshore you know there aren't, there aren't met, very met masts very many met masts for example um, but offshore wind farms uh, you could almost imagine like being a sensor measuring the wind speed if you, if you like um, having that information available to the weather models can help make them better uh, and in turn improve the forecasts for those uh, energy resources. So um, there's a, a lot of, uh, yeah, th th there's uh, so much going on in the space that's it's really uh, exhilarating to work in. Well, that's an interesting one. I'm going to make a very geeky question, sorry. Um, is that true of offshore wind farms, even though weather fronts in the UK mostly come in from the west or the southwest, and most of our offshore wind farms are on the east side of the country? Does, does that not have make a difference on...? Well, it, it's it's still useful to have that, that observation of the wind speed in the North Sea. So the, the way uh, weather models produce forecasts is, is by starting with an initial estimates of what the current state of the atmosphere is now and that they they'll do that by um initializing you know the what the weather parameters on that regular grid we were talking about and then pulling them towards what observations are available so there'll be things like satellite observations uh, you know of temperatures in the atmosphere at multiple heights um met stations weather balloons aircraft measurements 
Um, and that, that initial condition is so important for the quality of the forecast. If we have um, more observations in areas where we care a lot about the quality of the forecasts, such as the North Sea, having that better initial condition um, feeds forward into the, the resulting forecast. So you're absolutely right. Having um, upwind observations, for example, where the fronts are coming from, uh, could potentially add more value for sure. Um, but just just having that better initial condition um, uh, is, is still very valuable. That's really good. So in terms of next steps, sort of, um, what's, what's the next thing to look into from your perspective in this forecasting realm? Oh, such a big question. I think um, we're always interested in improving accuracy. And I think we're the industry and is in a place where the, the, the key, the key uh, lead time, uh, this day ahead lead time that where you know, the, the most energy is traded and the most preparations are made for operating the system is quite mature now. And I think we'll keep seeing incremental improvement in, in performance at the day ahead stage um, from the industry itself. You know, it's, it's very competitive world, um, renewable energy forecasting uh, these days. Where I think there's um, scope uh, for maybe more fundamental changes and improvement um, is in the very short term and the very long term horizons. So um, in the very short term, we're, we're, we're interested in, you know, what's our wind farm going to do over the next seconds and minutes? And how can we use that to maybe optimize our co-located storage or support the stability of the electricity network, for example? Um, or control our wind farm to be more, you know, extract the energy from from the wind more more efficiently, and um, there's huge potential there. And I think some of that will come from, um, you know, improved uh, machine learning algorithms. But uh, crucially, it will come from having uh, finding new sources of predictability. And I think that all some of it will come from um, new observations. So. Uh, we're, we're now launching weather satellites that are much better at uh, measuring wind speed, for example, which they, they haven't done in the past. And we're also deploying devices called LIDARs, which um, uh, use lasers to measure wind speed um, upwind of a wind farm. Um, and some of these LIDARs can scan uh, kilometers ahead, so you can really see the weather as it approaches. Um, so there's huge potential for improving these very short-term wind farms using that kind of technology. And then on the other end of the forecast horizon, so um, weeks and maybe months ahead, um, we've seen a lot of innovation in what we call sub-seasonal to seasonal forecasting. So this, this gap between um, days ahead and seasons ahead, where we can start to make predictions about not necessarily what the specific weather is going to be, but is it going to be windier than average in three or four weeks' time or less windy than average in three or four weeks' time? And um, you know the, today's energy traders can maybe capitalize on that. But if we think to the future when we have even more renewables and maybe more flexible demand and long-term storage, um, those kind of they're the kind of lead times that we might need to be planning on. You know, if we know we have a, a week-long wind drought coming, um, how can we prepare for that uh, in order to minimize the amount of fossil fuel we need to burn, for example, and, and the carbon impact of that, which is significant. You know, we've just experienced quite a long period of, of low wind in, in the UK. 
and it, you know the impact on energy prices has been widely reported because they're under pressures from other other things as well. But we've also been burning huge amounts um, of gas um, because that's how we fill the gap at the moment. It would be great in the future if we were able to prepare in advance uh, so that we didn't have to do that. Um, and I think on all of these lead times, um, we need to get better at um, working with uncertainty. We've talked about uncertainty and um, some of the challenges around uh, spatial dependency and, uh, and so on. Um, we as human beings uh, are really not very good with probabilities. Um, uh, psychologists have, have studied this um, over, over you know, recent decades, and it, it's, fa it's fascinating. Just even knowing we're bad at probability um, intuitively, um, how difficult it is to um, take that on board when we're designing processes and uh, the way we... Um, set up our, our, the world around us. And so I think um, accepting and learning to work with uncertainty is, is a must for the energy sector um, as it becomes more and more weather dependent and, and weather led even. Um, and I think there's, there's maybe a, a psychological shift needed, um, but we can also help ourselves by developing tools that um, fully appreciate uh, uncertainty, embrace it, and help us manage it as best possible. Um, whereas today, I feel um, we often like to try and um, reduce the uncertainty to some deterministic um, metric as, as quickly as possible, because we can work with a deterministic me metric and make a decision very easily. Um, but uh, yeah, gosh, I mean, there's, there's so much there. Um, I was actually just suddenly thinking whether something like a general adversarial network approach mm. where you're looking at not just optimising the forecast, but optimising the uncertainty. Mm. I wonder if you could play some machine learning games with those sorts of conceptualizations. You know, absolutely. That's so true. There was a, fa a fascinating, it was a competition, actually. It wasn't a research project. It was a competition set up by RTE, the, the French transmission system operator who provided a, a simulator of a large part of the electricity network. And the challenge was, can you build um, an, an automatic system operator? Um, there was no um, requirement for it to be machine learning based. It could have just been you know, rule based. Um, but that's what the winning teams uh, did. You know, they, they built these neural networks that learned through reinforcement learning how to operate the network most, of, most effectively. Um, and that's certainly one option for, um, for, for discovering new ways of operating uh, under uncertainty. Whether or not the control engineers at National Grid would be happy handing over the controls to a, a black box uh, is another question. But, but for sure, there's, uh, there's, uh, there are opportunities for, for learning from that kind of approach. Uh, and, and spaces where it, it might be perfectly reasonable to, to hand over controls to a neural networks. Brilliant. All right, so let's talk about challenges a little bit before we start to wind up. Um, so let's talk technical challenges first. What's the, what are the frustrations? What's the barriers that are uh, that you would really like to see worked on, maybe by the broader technical community that we could really support this sort of work? Oh, it's a big question. Hmm. I think lots of the 
the, the last challenge I mentioned there around, you know, effectively boils down to making making the most of, of forecast information. You know, the, the forecasting community um, is often driven by, you know, minimizing error or, or some, some similar, um, you know, accuracy metric. And, and that's great. You know, more accuracy is, uh, is, is going to be valuable in most cases. Um, but the, the real value comes from when an improved forecast helps make better decisions. And I think we, we need a better way of linking those two things together. Um, that, that the RTE, RTE competition is a nice example of that. Um, but I think that there are loads of technical challenges around how we um, link um, the operation of the energy system to um, to forecast information, but other information as well about um, you know the the need for for maintenance, for example, that requires and, and, and asset management in general. And I see. Um, I would like to see um, a much more joined up approach to um, to the way that we do those things. Um, right now, they, they, I, they sometimes seem to rub against each other. Um, and that, from a kind of practical perspective, I think, you know, in more open data and not just open data, but open models and, and so on um, can play a really big part in that. Uh, and thankfully, we, we're moving that way slowly but surely. Um, but I think, given that we're you know we're in a climate emergency, maybe we should um, you know push the big red button and and really uh, really get really and provide access to to data and models, not just for you know the research community uh, who can provide solutions to today, today's problems, but for all the innovators out there who you know have um, you know uh, you know there's this huge scope for new creative business models that could. Um, solve many of these problems in ways that uh, we're not even imagining today. Um, but you, they're, they're not, they, you can't build those things and, and test them without uh, the, right, the right information. Yes. Um, I think people problems are the other side of the, pro the problem. So I asked you first about technical problems. Um, mm. And I think everybody has barriers that, where they want to do more with the technical capability, the computing capability. But sometimes the biggest pro problems to getting the sort of value are not technical, they're people problems. Mm. Have you got any examples of spaces where it's people that are more difficult to convince, more difficult to take on the journey, more difficult to influence, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, this um, issue of managing uncertainty you know, is the, the classic example. So in, in, in forecasting, when we produce a forecast that includes um, quantified uncertainty, we call that a probabilistic forecast, and the forecast isn't just a prob isn't just a point; um, it's a probability distribution. And so, straight away, there there are skills you need in order to understand what that means and how to work with it. Um, and so, if you're pitching this as a solution to somebody's um, operational problem, um, the, there's kind of a some prerequisite knowledge that's that's required there to to ingest that and uh, imagine how it could work. Um, so there's 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 been a I think a kind of a collective learning in the energy sector on how we can how you know it's it's getting more uncertain more uncertain. Okay, how do we work with uncertainty? Okay, it's it's a language of probability. Um, 
what do we need to be able to how do how how can we work with probabilities in our in our industry in our business and we've been going on that journey for you know like probably a few decades now um and we start and we we're, we're getting there but i think um for sure um this this language of uh data and uncertainty uh probability um is going is is going to be necessary for our weather dependent energy system and um yeah and uh, yeah i see that as um a, a, you know a necessary skill in in our in our energy future uh where where does that skill get learned i'm not sure you know um is it in is it in school should it be a bigger part of engineering degree programs um possibly um or do does the energy sector just need to employ more statisticians maybe you know who who there there are many it's probably a mixture of all of these things um uh yeah for sure it's almost like there's been a massive cultural change um, and all of the change in data everybody in the data industry will will recognize that that ability to um have information that's there and it's quick but it's not necessarily certain it's not necessarily 100% right and people who are working with any sort of data at that type of level um, they do need to be able to work with uncertainty and sit with mm. that culture and if we look at back to what we were discussing at the beginning of this conversation about the type of energy electricity network that we would be running th you know three decades ago before we started really diving into the renewable space it was a very definite space that you mm. you had quite a lot of certainty about what it was going to look like over the next a few years and a lot of people who were in the industry then are still there mm. so that's the hardest space it's the cultural change where people have had to live through that change and had to adapt their own thinking all the way through and people will vary in how successful they are in that but mm. I think what's good is that because it's a broader cultural change because it's representing the change in technology that we're living through the change in data and the change in approach from a much more hier hierarchical office life Mm -hmm. This is something that's a lot more dynamic and individualised and about entrepreneurs and that sort of approach. Um, I think that's a very positive step towards um, moving to that. Let's let's work with uncertainty. We know this. We know this to this level and know better. Let's make the decision anyway mm. because decision is needed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I hope that will help. So let's finish with a little forecasting of our own. So looking forward to the next 10 years in the energy space, generally speaking, what do you expect to be different? What would you expect to be the same? And what are you hoping for? Well, I, I, I hope and expect we'll be further along our journey of decarbonisation, uh, which, you know, for us in, in the UK, at least, will involve much more offshore wind, probably more solar, um, and uh, hopefully much more flexibility on the demand side. So we're able to um, take advantage of that uh, low carbon energy when we have it and not so heavily reliant on, on fossil fuels when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And hopefully um, we'll all be better at um, using forecasts uh, in order to, to do that as, as best we can. Um, I think many things will be the same. We'll still have um, challenges of um, managing variability and uncertainty, but hopefully we'll be a bit more com comfortable with that. And um, yeah, I just 
it would be nice to say we're, we'll, we'll be able to forecast many of these things much better as well. But uh, we're, we're, there's, there's got to be a limit somewhere. We know there's a limit in, in weather forecasting, for example. Um, uh, but let's let's try and get as close as we can. Yeah. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today, Jethro. That's been a really interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed diving back into my energy energy expertise and coming back to that capability. It's been a pleasure catching up, generally speaking. And so I hope our listeners have found this an interesting deep dive on a topic where data is being used in actually a very concrete way to support our planet and our transition to a lower carbon electricity network. And if you have made it this far, thank you so much for listening and your time. And I hope you will join us again another time on the Data Lab podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Joanna. Thanks, everyone, for listening.